Welcome back. This is Beyond Dispensary. Today I'm speaking with Katie Kelly, a pharmacist living and working in the Solomon Islands. We discuss how Katie went from a career in hospital pharmacy on the Gold Coast to working with the Solutions Palmarobo organisation to help improve the lives of the Solomon Island people. It's fascinating work and I hope you'll enjoy hearing her journey as well. Hey Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm I'm really excited to talk to you, Katie. I've had a, a few people mention that I should um, get you on the show and, and hear about some of the amazing uh, work that you've done, um, particularly through your work with Solutions Palmarovo. But um, maybe before we get there, just tell us where you where you're calling from. Uh, so right now I'm on Upi Island, which is a small remote island in the middle of the Solomons. Um, in the Pacific Ocean, I guess. That sounds really nice. Much better than my little office here in, in Brisbane. That sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking out to beautiful ocean water under my deck and it's just, we've just had a massive tropical rainstorm. So beautiful. it's quite tropical. <laughs> I'm very jealous. Um, well, um, so maybe explain while you're there. Can you, would you mind just giving us a bit of a introduction about yourself, um, maybe about some of your education, um, where you've worked and, and, um, and why you're calling in from the Solomon Islands. Yeah, sure. Um, so I did my bachelor, bachelor of Pharmacy degree at James Cook up in Townsville. And when I completed my studies there, I went on to do my internship at Gold Coast Hospital. I worked there for about six years, I think, um, in various different roles as a junior pharmacist and sort of stepping in and out of um, different roles in outpatient clinics, transitional care program, and a little bit of time backfilling some education roles. And during my time at Gold Coast, I also did a postgraduate diploma in clinical pharmacy with UQ. And for those two years that I was working full-time and studying part-time, everything was pharmacy. So all of my spare time was spent studying, and obviously I was working really hard as well. And it was as a celebration of completing those studies that myself and a good friend of mine decided to volunteer in true pharmacist form to go and do something also pharmacy related. (laughs) Um, But it was kind of like a celebration to say, yep, we we got through that uh, clinical pharmacy degree. Let's go and have some fun and do something a little bit different. So um, I was in touch with another good friend of mine who you probably know, and I'm sure at some point you'll interview on this podcast. Her name's Brooke Bullock. So she had been up here on part of um, the medical program six months prior to that. And so this was in 2013. So we knew we wanted to do something a little bit different. And we approached Brooke because she had been doing heaps of cool stuff in PNG. And she told us about this program over here in the Solomons. And she basically said to myself and my, my good friend, Monique Hare, um, that this was something she thought we should try out. It was a really soft entry, I suppose, into volunteering. So taking a two-week trip in your own time on holidays um, to go and volunteer your skills and just do something a little bit outside the normal pharmacy square. So that was November 2013, came over here um, as a volunteer and that, I guess, for me, was a completely life-changing um, experience, um, not only because of the medical tour, 
but also because I met my now husband, Jason, so, or Jace, feel weird calling him Jason. Um, so Jace was actually coordinating the program. He, he called himself the chief logistics officer at the time. And um, yeah, that's how we met. We first became friends. And when I came back to Australia, um, we stayed in contact and it wasn't too long after that that we started dating. So yeah, and then we basically um, got to know each other a little bit from afar and then I moved over to UP about 18 months later. So it was all um, a pretty massive change pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a that's a very successful trip, uh, a new career in life direction <laughs> and a new life partner. That's that's not too bad for a two-week two yeah. uh, volunteering stint, eh? That's it. It was um, pretty full on. <laughs> well, um, uh, so I guess mainly I want to I want to really unpack um, your work in the Solomon Islands today. But um, uh, bef- before we sort of get to that, um, how did you how did you find your your six years or so at um, Gold Coast Hospital? It sounds like you were doing sort of more traditional hospital hospital pharmacy work. Did you ever see your career going in such a um, different direction? Yeah, look, I think when I started my postgraduate degree, I was looking for a challenge and I'd been in that sort of rotational junior pharmacist role for a couple of years and I thought the direction I wanted to to take was education. Um, even before doing my undergraduate degree, I always thought I'd end up becoming um, a tertiary educator and so I sort of dabbled in that a little bit. It became available to me to step into the educator role and I did that a couple of times and really loved it. But it was sort of when I started my postgrad degree that I probably learned that there were many other directions you could take a hospital pharmacy um, career. And volunteering initially for me, it was just, like I said, it was a celebration of completing something. It was a way to reward myself. And what happened for me was a complete um, change in mindset about what I wanted to achieve in my life as a person but also as a pharmacist so it was completely unexpected I had no idea that those first few moments volunteering would lead to the career that I have today so um, yeah Yeah, pretty different to where I thought I'd end up that's for sure it sounds like the the postgrad degree that you did was um, you you got a lot out of it Um, I think I've been um, potentially yeah. sort of somewhat hesitant in the past um, I, I just didn't know how sort of um, valuable the, the syllabus would be and that sort of thing but um, sounds like you had a really good experience yeah I did I um I met some really cool people doing that degree made some good friends and um, I think for me the most impactful aspect of the course was probably the research stuff um, mostly because I never ever had a desire to move into research and doing that postgrad sort of opened my eyes a little bit to how you can self-direct your own career a little bit should you have the interest in putting in the time and energy into something that you yourself find meaningful so I at the time it still didn't you know it didn't lead to me doing any research at Gold Coast Um, I did a few little DUEs and things like that which I probably also would have never done before but I think now looking back on what I've achieved in the past six years here, it sort of makes me realise that having done that postgraduate degree sort of set me up for what I've now achieved. So, yeah, it's definitely worthwhile. I, it's very individual as well. So it just depends on, you know, what you're looking to 
to learn and improve your knowledge on. And hey, so in, in 2013, when you, when you went and did this, what, what was that organization called at that time? So Solutions Palmarovo did exist then, um, but the, the origins of the organization from back in 2008 is from an American organization called Morovo Medical Foundation. So originally um, it all sort of started with um, some people who are guests at the resort here and they were from America. They were from Arizona, I think. And they were asked to see a, a patient or a, or a staff member here, actually, who was ill. And it was their initial um, experience here that led to them recognising that there was a, a severe lack in health services. And they decided to return shortly after that with a small number of people from the, the US. And that was basically the conception of the medical tours. By 2013, Solutions Palmarovo was established um, by the Kelly family, so by my husband Jace, his parents, um, together with a couple of local board members. Solutions was basically put together as an umbrella organisation to cover the work that had been done by the family for many years in the areas of education um, and then in health as well, supporting these medical programs and in resource development. So. The organisation had done quite a bit of work in infrastructure development, um, supporting the local area health centre, which is now um, classed as a mini hospital, upgrading the facility there, as well as building an operating theatre, which was completed in 2013. Sounds like sort of two causes coming together. It sounds like the um, education on the Solomon Islands was already in place with the Kelly family and then um, these uh, American guys that really started up the medical tours and Solutions Palmarovo is sort of the combination is that is that about right yeah so the the medical the medical tours initially were a concept born by this american couple who then went on to develop morovo medical foundation and then solutions essentially is the in-country partner so now we we actually have a, an organization in australia as well and it's called heads which is an acronym for health education and development solutions for solomon islands and that's basically our sister organisation, which allows us to raise funds in Australia and support the programs here in the Solomons, um, giving people the ability to get a tax donation on their um, their gifts. And that organisation also helps us to evaluate our programs and plan for the future. But if you look at Solutions Palmerova now as the in-country implementing organisation who works alongside heads as well as Morovo Medical Foundation from the US. So that's basically how it works. So like our family, Jason and I and his parents, we're all board members for Solutions and we're also all board members for Heads. But then the Heads board also consists of a number of other people with various um, skills and qualifications to be able to support us in what we do. Yeah, it's, it's quite a big team. I, I recently watched um, the documentary that had been made, um, the Morovo Medical yeah. Mission, which was which was fantastic. What a, what a great little documentary. Um, and I was just I was blown away by um, the amount of people and the amount of um, different specialties and that sort of thing that's that's involved with with this work. It's it's really great. Yeah, yeah, um, it's pretty pretty impressive. Hey, it is it actually it really is. Um, and so. What, um, what would you say your your main sort of work is and um, do, you, do you mainly work with um, one organisation or, or sort of across the, across the board? Um, well, 
It's funny, I'm sort of, you know, I, I am a pharmacist. All of my pharmacist work is non-remunerated, so I don't get paid for any of the work that I do. But I guess the really special thing about our situation is that as a family, we run the resort here. So Upi Island Resort is our family resort. And so a big part of running this tourist resort here is actually the community engagement. So my role within our business here has always been really heavily focused on the volunteer work. So I spend a lot of my time, probably more than 50% of my time working on medical aspects for Solutions Palmarovo. So HEADS is a little different in that, you know, within Australia, there's certain roles and responsibilities to, um, to achieve. And I'm heavily involved in those sorts of things when we're recruiting teams and that sort of thing as well. But typically implementation of programs and setting up protocols, all that sort of thing is done through solutions. It's sort of blurry lines though, because mm. we're all the same people and we're all, you know, striving to achieve the same goals. So it's, um, it's hard to define sometimes, but the, most of my days are spent working on this sort of thing. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the, the, the pharmacist role. Um, what, is a, what does a pharmacist do for Solutions Palmer though? Yeah. Um, well, when I was looking at the, the questions to prepare for this, I thought back to my very first tour in 2013 and, man, it's amazing. Um, all of the medicines that were available on that trip were donated, mostly expired and really lacking in quality and quantity. So we we were recruited to the team and we traveled over here not really knowing what to expect and when we got here we had to basically do the best that we could with the resources that were available we had a single tub like a plastic tub of medications and everything had to be hand labeled we were given half a packet i'm not kidding not a whole packet just half a packet of office work stickers <laughs> which we had to make last for the entire trip wow so we were handwriting labels <laughs> We were, um, I'll never forget staying up until the early hours of the morning one night, sterilizing these tiny eardropper bottles that were sample bottles that came from the US with something in them. We had to empty them out, sterilize them, and then transfer Sofradex drops back into them so we could <laughs> make that stock just go a little bit further. And you know, things like that, cutting spaces out of empty water bottles and visually oh, wow. inspecting tablets to see if they were good or not smelling things to know if they were moldy or if they'd oxidized and you know thinking back to that trip I just our role on that trip was basically to just do what we could with what we were given and hope that we could give the patients what they needed and a lot of the patients we were seeing like say they were in pain the best we could do was give them 10 paracetamol tablets and Someone with a chronic illness might have been given a month or less supply of their medicines and often we were mixing brands and strengths to achieve the doses that they needed and it was, you know, it was some some crazy stuff when you think back to it. Um, but in many ways I'm really grateful to have had that experience because it taught me some really important lessons. One, about the inadequacies of the healthcare systems in the developing world, but also the serious dangers of visiting volunteer programs and international visitors coming into a remote setting and with the right intentions, um, doing the best they can, but in some situations, possibly putting people in danger by not using 
medicines that are safe and appropriate. So I'll never forget that trip. Absolutely life-changing. But the role for pharmacists these days is extraordinarily different. So I don't know if you want me to give you like this yeah, please. I mean, I was, I, I guess one of my questions was going to be, you know, um, was, was pharmacy services sort of a, a consideration from the beginning of the medical tours? And it sounds like it, mm. it was, but with a big asterisk and <laughs> it doesn't sound like it was, it was yeah. that well thought out. Well, for the first five years, not really. I mean, there was no pharmacist up until Brooke attended in May of 2013. And prior to that, um, it was just a helper who was dispensing medicines that the volunteers had gathered to bring with them, you know, anything that they could take from their clinics back home, anything that they could purchase over the counter, things like children's vitamins and things were kind of making up the bulk of the inventory. So it was all a bit ad hoc. And um, when Brooke attended in 2013, she was the first pharmacist and she attended by herself and had some helpers helping her dispense. And then myself and Monique were on that next trip. And from my first trip, I've attended every tour since then. And it's just grown and grown and grown. So I guess having a pharmacist come on board and recognise the need for pharmacy input as well as a safe dispensary changed things dramatically from then on. Hmm. So, what is, and, and, and yeah, what, what does the role look like now? How has it changed? Yeah, so following my first couple of trips, I started auditing. So I started to gather some information about medicines that were being prescribed. I conducted a few patient-based studies to evaluate their adherence behaviours for those people who are taking regular medicines. And, of course, it wasn't surprising to find that adherence scores were dangerously low and lots of factors played a role in that. Poor health literacy, distrust in conventional medicine, customary medicine beliefs, inconsistent medication supply, and poor counselling, not only from the local clinic nurses, but also there were major barriers within our own program due to the cross-cultural counselling. So my first few goals were really to improve the quality and quantity of medicines available on tours. And in order to achieve that, I had to say no to donations. I had to try and change that culture within volunteers to want to bring every return medicine that they had available to them (laughs) and I needed a budget so I had to be able to buy the medicines that we actually needed. So what I did was I developed an ideal inventory of medicines and over the few years following that I learned how to balance that inventory with the prescribing habits because we still had a big range of physicians. We had American and Australian, occasionally we had um, New Zealand participants some English, and we were striving to keep all of it in line with the guidelines set out by the country's Ministry of Health because something that was really important to us from the beginning of my involvement was that what we're trying to achieve is a supplementary program that can fill the gaps rather than introducing unsustainable medication supply chains that can never be afforded by the local system. So you're always planning with the end in mind, you know, when our program stops running, have we left, you know, the system in a state that they can't maintain or have we been able to sort of supplement the existing system so that it can build up um, strength over the years so that eventually, you know, you work yourself to be not needed anymore. That Mm. was our ultimate goal. 
So I, I always acquired what I could for free and there's a national medical store here in the capital. So I was always trying to get what I could from them. We developed a, an MOU between our organisation and the Ministry of Health so that we could do that through the right channels. And then I started, we actually got a big donation from Chemist Warehouse in Australia and that was through a personal connection to one of the um, owners of Chemist Warehouse and they basically gave us a budget to work with and that was something I'll be forever grateful for because that allowed us to develop purchase orders with our doctors who were practising with us and actually order the things that we felt we needed and go from there. So it's been a similar system for quite a while now. We use a couple of wholesalers in Australia as well. We also do some ordering through um, pharmacies in country, local pharmacies and the National Medical Store, which I mentioned before. So, you know, we were able to improve the quality and quantity of medicines that we were getting and then sort of started working on improving the safety of dispensing. So we got a donation from a company called Sterling Field who produce a lot of Um, very useful things for us like amber bottles dispensing boxes and labels Um, my contact there was able to help me out with printing some local language specific ancillary labels which is really cool and it's just so so much to think about isn't there yeah it's like it's essentially like building a pharmacy from scratch but you have to be able to take that pharmacy with you across oceans (laughs) (laughs) and set it up immediately in a small village in the middle of nowhere. So, um, yeah, we got all of this, the dispensing side of things a little safer. And then, oh, it might sound really silly, but the day I got my own zebra printer was like the biggest day of my life. And we that's were a, that's, a, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty niche <laughs> reference for uh, anyone not currently working in the industry. <laughs> Exactly. Um, But being able to take laptops and iPads to the villages and set up this sort of portable clinic and have your own zebra printer sitting on the counter next to you and print labels as needed was like revolutionary for us. So my hubby Jace set up an Excel template for all of our common labels and it's a really basic setup, but it works for us. And that's what we're still doing today, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's great. Um, And then we... We started introducing electronic data collection um, for a couple of reasons. One was because I was really keen to collect information, but also because we had a reporting obligation back to the Ministry of Health here in the Solomons. So rather than having to produce paper records, um, which is really time consuming in the moment of the clinic, but also after the fact dealing with those records, we started um, electronic data collection as a, an online tool which we use, which is free for organisations like us, and it's called Kobo Toolbox. And we basically developed a data collection system there and we started recording that information. And that gave us like an incredible opportunity to review the patients that we were seeing, patient demographics, diseases that we were observing, as well as the use of medicines on the tours. Mm. And that kind of led us down the road of, okay, we're improving on our safe um, dispensing. Let's look at safe prescribing in this setting. And this for me is when it really became like my dream job, um, working alongside some incredible physicians in all sorts of specialties. We, um, we started producing things like a medical record book. So 
here in the Solomons, the patient actually retains their medical information. So if you attend a clinic or a hospital, you're expected to bring your record book with you. And a lot of patients who are showing up to our clinics were too scared to show up with nothing. So they would tear the side of the cardboard box off and write their name and date of birth on it and hand that to us at the opening of the clinic and say, this is my record book. So obviously that's insufficient for recording medical information. And some of the examples, I've got photos of piles of these books on a desk waiting to see a doctor and they're just scraps of paper. So alongside a lot of the doctors, we put together a medical record card a book that the patients could recognise um, that we'd produced it, that it was part of our program, that we were giving it to them for free because that was the other barrier to patients having an actual legitimate record was that they had to pay for it at the local clinic. So we were giving it out to people for free. We were recording information clearly in a template that you could easily see and collect information from. And that was the first probably big thing in procedural things that we changed and then we started developing treatment algorithms for chronic disease management relevant to the medicines that we had available in, in line with the country's standard treatment formulas and yeah other sort of treatment guidelines for common conditions because many of the things that we were seeing our doctors from Australia or the US are really not used to treating unless they've worked in like indigenous health or um, tropical medicine somewhere else so we were, it was much better to have sort of these quick view guidelines that people could look at and see which medications we had available to treat them appropriately. That's, that's an incredible challenge. We, you're, you're rewriting guidelines yeah. to, to, to fit the medicines and to fit the access. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, thinking about developing those procedures without recreating the wheel, you know, we don't really want to put all this time and energy into creating documents that may already exist, which is something I'm really big on. And that was kind of the difference, I think, in having a pharmacist involved in these sorts of um, procedural decisions, because in the past, the organisation had been doing the best they could, but, you know, multiple people had been involved and in putting together these documents that were a bit all over the place and hard to follow and trying to recreate the wheel on a large extent when it really didn't need to be. Um, there's also some really good resources now available in the Solomons and in an app format, which is completely free to access. So we use that now as well. We try and stick with those guidelines wherever possible. Um, and then after sort of improving those things, we grew the laboratory capabilities. And I think we might have kind of it's easy to forget that back home in Australia, we have so much supportive information for the patients that we're treating. And out here, you're treating really common conditions with things, with medications that seem quite straightforward, but not having the ability to check someone's kidney function or their HbA1c is a massive barrier to being, to being able to treat them appropriately. So it was huge for us when we got the funding to be able to grow our lab. And that was mostly my hubby, Jace. Um, he's kind of the lab man these days. So we uh, formed a partnership with Aaliyah, not Pharmaceuticals, Aaliyah. They're now Abbott. Um, and they basically loan us the equipment that we need to have point of care testing. And, you know, you think back to those first trips when it was, you know, a doctor in their stethoscope. And now we have a full on pharmacy a laboratory where we can test every diabetic patient gets a HbA1c kidney function urinalysis lipid profiles 
Um, so it's come a very, very long way in that short amount of time. Um, yeah, so my last point on this topic is that as those clinics became more and more autonomous and I managed to convince everybody that we needed more and more positions for pharmacists <laughs> and I had a huge farmy army behind me. Um, by this point, like in the last couple of years, we would have at least five pharmacists um, and we were able to start a prospective study. So this was my initiative along with... Um, the uh, gentleman who is our surgical and medical director, he's an anaesthetist from Port Macquarie in Australia, and he and I started um, a retrospective data analysis. Um, sorry, we started our prospective study in 2019 looking at the care of our diabetic patients. And initially we'd been collecting electronic records for a little while, so we had the ability to retrospectively look at what we thought was happening, that we believed we were making a good impact, but actually to, to be able to start thoroughly analysing the impact that our tour was having on outcomes for our patients. So whether our diabetes patients were actually having improvements in their HbA1c and, and other outcomes of disease. So, Have you had any data on that already or is it still sort of being collected? No, so we're midway through collecting. The, um, the ethical approval for it was 2019 to 2021 and we have been in isolation, lockdown because of COVID. Of so we actually haven't run a tour since November 2019, mm. which was the second of what should have been um, six tours for the study. So, yeah, unfortunately... I guess with a lot of people around the world, perhaps the pandemic will um, redirect my papers from yeah. this study. It may give me another another angle. Um, and, you know, that's a really important and valid point to consider as well is that when you have invited international teams implementing a program and there's a, a pandemic that shuts that down, what's the outcome for the patients, you know, what actually happens to them um, and their disease state so it's really tricky because we've been left here with very little and in the end of 2019 a lot of our equipment got sent back for servicing so we've been unable to continue even doing our lab tests um, and we've done a couple of interim supplies of medications where we've been able to get some medicines over from Australia um, at a huge expense, having to pay duty and all this sort of thing on it because of the timing and, and COVID and everything. Um, but that's all we've been able to achieve, which is a real shame. So we've sort of had to focus our time on just surviving during this period. Um, yeah. But I hope that when we get back up on our feet, we can um, go back and review some of these outcomes and see see what's what's going on. Yeah, it's fascinating work. Um and so important, I'd be very interested to, to see the results. I can only imagine that you're having a very positive impact. Um, the the Farmy Army that you mentioned that was, um, uh, I guess, helping you lead this prospective study, that, that was the, the volunteers through Solutions Palmarovo, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, it's funny, in the early days, it was kind of harder to find people to come along and, and join me on these tours. But as the years have gone by, we found some really amazing people and it's I, I do very little work now to find people the people seem to find me through word of mouth and 
um, you know, others who've been on the tours before recruiting people and, and getting them in contact with me, which is amazing. So now it's usually fairly easy. I'm usually booking tours sort of 12 to 18 months ahead, um, which gives people enough time to plan for the, the time off work and um, apply and, yeah, sort of plan ahead. So, yeah, it's a, I, I kind of have decided now that five's the, the sweet spot for me, yeah. <laughs> which is really good. So, yeah. No, that was certainly my experience. Um, I talked to a number of my colleagues who've um, done work with Solutions Palmarevo and, and um, yeah, it sounds like they just had the most incredible time. And um, I think, you know, certainly their perspectives on, on healthcare certainly changed when they're over there. Um, just, yeah, just touching sure. on one of your other points, I was interested, your, you said your partner's um, sort of the, uh, the lab guy. Um, now, he, he doesn't have yeah. a background in, in pathology or lab science, does he? No, he doesn't. So Jace actually studied international business and export management. Mm. <laughs> um, That's a bit of upskilling. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty different. He spent several years, probably about almost a decade, um, working in sustainable forestry and also, I guess, through his initiative, um, living this life here in the Morovo and being part of the community and trying to find alternatives for really destructive things that are going on in this country. And he first came in contact with the medical tours way back when they started in 2008 and living a really remote life like we do at UPI, even as, um, you know, a person without a medical background, you have to have certain abilities and, um, and Jace has just always kind of been one of those people who could learn to do anything. And I think for him, when he got involved in the lab, learning the equipment and um, learning how all of those tests and everything work. He's, he's a wizard with the machines. And here in this environment, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on. The temperature and humidity affect these sorts of machines. And he finds ways around all sorts of problems just to troubleshoot and get on with the day. It's amazing. Um, but over the years, he's had various people um, teach him to take blood and um, manage samples and all that sort of thing he's done basic training on site here with us and he's also a first aid instructor which gives him a little bit of um, background just with his own personal protective approach to um, blood draws and things like that but mm. yeah he's kind of um, he's learned so many amazing things over the years and I must also mention for our pharmacy team when they're here on tour, Jace is also a really, really useful translator because he's lived here most of his life. He can speak both of the local languages and his pharmacy knowledge now is exceptional, um, but he's also just really good at translating for our pharmacy team when they need help with tricky counselling. So, um, yeah, he's a crazy skilled man. Yeah, it sounds like it. That's, it. that's That's super impressive. Um, yeah. and so, um, I mean, the, the work that you've done to sort of, um, set up a more contemporary pharmacy and, and ensure supply lines and, um, ensure that you have, uh, appropriate, uh, syllabus of medicines to access. Um, I mean, that, that's just incredible work. How, how much, um, sort of counseling, um, and maybe sort of, uh, clinical, uh, input do you have in terms of your pharmacist role? Oh, a huge amount. I think, um, it's funny when I like I think back to those first couple of early tours for me, the biggest um, eye-opening experience for you when you're put into a position where there's um, differences in culture and you're a health professional is that you feel like you can't 
deliver the information that you need to deliver in an adequate way. And I know a lot of first-time volunteers on our tour have this feeling as well, where they feel like they know what they need to say, they understand the information that needs to get across, but actually achieving that when there's um, language barriers is huge. And after my first couple of tours, I spent a lot of time learning the language. Um, I spent a lot of time developing these other mechanisms to make it safer for pharmacists to be able to counsel patients even with really little experience. So developing pre-printed labels that had um, the local language so that a pharmacist could read off the label in language to be able to counsel their patients and putting together, you know, little patient information cards, again, in basic language or using pictures to be able to say, you know, this is your scabies treatment, but this is what you've got to do to your household in order for this to all work. You know, all those sorts of things, having them pre-prepared and having them available to just hand out with the medication um, also speeds things up, but it gives the pharmacist a little bit more confidence to be able to feel like they're able to impart the knowledge that they should be giving, I think. Um, my skills now are pretty pretty different. I can speak the local language. Um, so I guess <laughs> it's a little easier for me now and that's another reason it's important for me to be there with the team, um, particularly when we have newcomers for the tour so that you're there to support them with those cultural barriers as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's obviously so important. It's, um, it's one thing to have the knowledge, but, um, you know, patient-centered medicine means we have to obviously make sure that's, that's getting across in a, uh, a patient appropriate way. Um, you, you mentioned that you, right. yeah. you, you work with so many, um, different sort of physicians from, from all around the world. How, how do you go? How's your relationships with them? And, um, uh, are they receptive to your sort of influence on um, guiding prescribing and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think I've had really varying experiences over the years. Um, the physicians from the US were, I guess, a little more surprised by how a pharmacist could step in and provide support. And I think his pharmacists were so good at respecting the knowledge and ability of the doctor um, but you know sort of stepping in when you feel it's needed to raise awareness about something that might be going on whether it's a drug interaction or just something that's completely inappropriate when you're working in a setting like we do um, for one I mean you're working alongside people that you're also staying in a resort with and you're socializing with them for two weeks so you all become very good friends mm. you, you sort of develop relationships you wouldn't normally experience back home in a hospital or in a community pharmacy where you're calling someone on the phone so you have general conversations about your your own career and I think that improves awareness not only for the pharmacist to realize that the doctors are just human as well but also for the the doctors to see that pharmacists have a lot more knowledge than they sometimes given credit for and in the setting here everybody is out of their comfort zone to an extent and the pharmacy has different obligations to what you might experience back in a, in a hospital at home. You've got a set inventory. So sometimes you start running low on something and a doctor may prescribe something that's maybe, you know, it's warranted, but that, that tinea cream might be more beneficial for someone who's covered in tinea versus someone who's got a small amount of tinea corpus on their leg. So 
the pharmacists are also responsible for sort of rationalizing medicines as well. Mm. So being able to go back to the doctor and say, I appreciate this diagnosis and agree completely, but we have five tubes of cream left and we've still got a whole nother clinic day and maybe somebody tomorrow will be covered in tinea. What do you think? And the doctors also have to... I was just going to say that's that sort of um, judicious use of medicines um, that maybe we don't have to think that's about right. all the time in, you know, more sort of um, yeah. uh, inner city or contemporary medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, you know, these days I do my best not to have those sorts of limitations um, with the inventory. So as the years go by and as you experience the the types of conditions that you're seeing, you do try and cater to those needs, but it's always tricky. And there's always sort of a flavour of the tour. Um, sometimes it'll be that we have, you know, extraordinary numbers of patients presenting with red eye and bacterial conjunctivitis. And in the first three days, you go through your entire stock of, of eye ointments and then you're left with nothing. And, you know, I'm on the phone trying to air freight stock in from the capital and doing all sorts of things to try and find supply for people. And sometimes you just can't predict those things. And, at the end of the tour, you just have to turn people away. And that's the devastating thing, I think, when you're involved in the, in the organisational level of it is trying to plan for those things that you can't actually foresee. And I've done this many times before with things that are a little more critical, having things like infant iron supplements. You know, that's something that when you need it, you really need it. And if you don't have it, then it's almost like a death sentence. And then you go and spend a huge portion of your budget to make sure you've got plenty of it and it sits there for a couple of tours and then expires and you're, you're a bit gutted, you know, you feel like, oh, damn. But at the same time, you've got to recognise that, you know, if you didn't have it there, then you'd be really devastated as well. So mm. it's all a bit of a balance. But going back to talking about um, the, the different physicians that you're working with, I think as a young pharmacist, it's an incredible experience to have this, socialization and an experience where everybody is out of their comfort zone and everybody's sort of banding together for the best outcome for the patient because it breaks down those walls a little bit it makes you realize that everybody has the same goals in mind and everybody has some knowledge to offer and that it grows your confidence as a professional I think and you you walk away from the experience knowing that next time you you want to go and approach somebody back home you know, give yourself a little bit of credit um, and don't be afraid to have those conversations and approach it with a relaxed uh, a relaxed manner, I suppose. Mm. Um, that seems to help. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good message. Um, can I ask you, what, what was it like to be part of the documentary? I saw that you were, uh, you were featured at one point, had a starring role. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a really good trip. Um, that actually all came about in a really funny way, sort of how things seem to happen um, with Solutions and Upi, this beautiful place here. Uh, the filmmakers were actually visitors. They were here on holidays and Jace and I are really connected with them. They're a young couple and um, we became um, quite chatty and we found out that he was an incredible filmmaker and they offered to stay a little longer if they could stay in our house. And so they bunkered down next door in our house and they were supposed to be here for five nights. They stayed for five weeks and we had an incredible time. They filmed the whole thing for free and edited it, edited, 
edited it in, um, you know, the humidity of Upi, um, sitting in a small dark room for a couple of weeks. And yeah, it was awesome. It was really relaxed. And like I said, the team here at the time were a lot of fun. So it kind of made it um, made it easy and they just became part of the team poking the camera in here and there and it's funny like I went back and watched the documentary this week just because you had mentioned it and in five years or six years that it's been not a huge amount has changed um, obviously the inner workings of the the clinic are, are a little bit different and it's a much more robust system but the experience for the volunteers is quite similar. And um, I just, I find it quite interesting. A lot of the patients who are featured in that documentary have now passed on. And that's kind of a reflection to me of the state of healthcare in this country and like the impact of a pandemic here. You know, yeah. not, having, not having medical tours for what will be at least two years and not being able to do a lot about it is devastating and it's so sad to see that quite a number of those patients have passed away and they're not that old you know but yeah I was just gonna say quite... yeah they didn't um the people I, I saw featured weren't weren't that old that's for sure it must be that must be quite heartbreaking mm-hmm. for you um it yeah, was a it was a, a great little documentary um and it's it's called Morova Medical Mission I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for anyone who wants to to have a look um but I, I I just wanted to say there was there was one point where they were um uh interviewing one of the patients who'd just been through the clinic and um seen the doctor and that sort of thing and they they asked her what um uh what what the doctors did for her or what the team did for her and she, she thinks about it and she sort of says oh well they you know they gave me medicines and stops for a while, and then she says, "and and and also their love." And I thought that was so nice, and then in a in a non corny mm-hmm. way, you know, it was you know she really really did appreciate um, just the care that was taken, and um, it was just funny that from the two takeaways about what they'd done for her, that um, you know just that someone had cared for her was one of them. I thought that was really nice. Yeah, absolutely. She's a very special lady, and I think that. Um, that kind of is the epitome of what this is all about. It's interesting that patients here, you know, they may sit and wait for six hours on a really busy clinic day and there'll be not a single complaint. No one will leave. Everyone will wait until their name is called. They'll wait a couple of hours for their medications if it takes that long. And they're incredibly grateful because this is their only chance to see a doctor. There's um. It's really difficult in some of these areas. Access is extraordinarily poor, so it's very hard for people to even get to the local clinics where they can see a nurse. But having a cardiologist or an endocrinologist brought to their village to conduct these, you know, gold standard tests and deliver them with the medications that they need with a long-term supply, with the guarantee that we're going to come back in six months and see them again, it's something that I think the local community here have come to really respect and trust about our organisation and it's the way that you deliver that care that is really special for the relationships that you build with the patients but also as as the professional walking away knowing that, you know, you've treated somebody in the most raw way with what you had available and they're grateful for it. Mm. It's something really special. Yeah, that's quite a contrast um, <laughs> to some of the practice uh, that um, I see or when I work in the emergency department at, uh, at my hospital, not everyone's uh, that grateful. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, 
Hey, can I ask you what, um, obviously with Solutions Palmarevo, one of the other big focuses is um, education and, and health promotion. What do you think are some of the most important or, or some of the uh, biggest uh, lessons that you guys push? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of activities that we conduct during each medical tour. So um, initially bringing on a dietitian into the sort of team mix was a really big step towards improving the education aspect of um, of the care that we give to, to patients, making sure that not only are they given the medicines and the tests that they need to look after them, but they're, they're also given really, really patient-centred information around how to alter their diet and increase physical activity and that sort of thing to improve their health. So that's the dietitian's um, primary role, but anybody who's on the tour can sort of get involved in those activities as well. It's interesting on these trips, um, the majority of us nowadays are health professionals, but there's a couple of helpers who we need as well just to sort of keep patients where they're meant to be. And everyone bands together. So if you're not busy in your area, you'll jump in and do some education. Um, within the pharmacy, I've always sort of taken any any opportunity that we can to do some health education um, for people who are waiting on medicines or waiting to see the doctors. So it might be smoking cessation talks or sex education, women's health topics, um, and those sorts of things are variable in how we how we are able to do it. Hmm. Usually we're pretty busy, so if we get the chance, I'll sort of sneak off with my sex ed pack, with my you know mannequin and and condoms and go and find all the young ladies and go and hide in a quiet area somewhere to give them some um, information about safe sex practices. Um, smoking cessation is really opportunistic when you're counselling patients. You can, I've got a few um, charts that we use to help talk about those things or raising it in general conversation with people who are standing around in groups just waiting. Um, and then a couple of the people who you might have spoken to have probably participated in a really fun activity that we do, which is centred around antimicrobial resistance. So we do a little skit in the villages um, when the rest of the team is having their lunch break, the pharmacists jump up and keep working. And um, we've got a little skit that we do, which is uh, I've got a set of boxing gloves and I dress up as the um, as the antibiotic with my, my boxing gloves and another person acts as the bacteria who you know, starts to put up blockers and um, prevent the antibiotics from working over time as they're used inappropriately. And we do all of that in local language and it's a lot of fun. And usually you get a crowd of 100 or so people that will gather around under a tree and sit and listen to me ramble on about not pressuring the local health system to give you antibiotics and, you know, not asking the nurses to give um, things that aren't needed and allowing them to do their job properly. and um, yeah, because here there's a lot of mixed messages about antibiotics. If someone has a sore arm, they expect to get amoxicillin. If they have a sore tummy, they expect to get amoxicillin. And, you know, the moment they have a cough, they need the five-day kneeler, which is penicillin for five days. And it's there's a lot of really poor messages about um, antimicrobial use. So, yeah, so we do a bit of, um, bit of that and... I think that needs to come to the mainland, the, the pantomime for antimicrobial resistance. Yeah. Maybe undergrad pharmacy yeah. should do that. That's, 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 I love that lesson. Yeah. That's great. It's really fun, actually. Yeah. Um, I wish I had it on video because it's, it's quite funny. And the, the local people here are really animated. They get right into these sorts of things and they'll be cheering and laughing and carrying on. So, yeah, it's a good one. And it gets the message across, I think, as well. So, 
It's a win-win. Um, a more recent um, a development that we have is a role for a health education officer within the lagoon. So this is an initiative by Solutions Palmerovo, which will be a paid position for a member of our community um, to be a health representative. And the role of that person is going to be to travel travel the lagoon, visit schools and churches and youth groups to deliver information about just general public health information about preventing illness, um, healthy eating and giving information to the community about what diabetes and hypertension actually are and how we can avoid them. Um, so that role hasn't actually started just yet, but that's something we're working on at the moment. I'm putting together some information packages to train that individual so that he's capable of delivering those um, those health talks around the place. And yeah, I've done a bit of work with the youth program as well, just going out to the community and talking about medication safety and preventative health messages and that sort of thing as well. And that's outside of the tour times. So that's just a little bit variable. How do you think that um, your approach to practice uh, back in Australia, if you if you came back and did hospital work here or community work here, how do you think that would be impacted by um, your experience in the Solomons? Oh, gosh, it would be a big transition to come back. They call that reverse culture shock, I think. Um, I'd be shocked the moment someone didn't want to wait for me or no, just kidding. Um, I think having had this experience here, it's it's a massive reminder that every patient is important to someone and every patient deserves to have um, their care centred around them. I think the health system in Australia is amazing and, you know, it's easy to forget when you live the world where you work in a big public hospital in Australia or a nice, clean community pharmacy, how privileged it is. And I think I'd be a little bit shocked going back into those systems now, just having everything at my fingertips and having other people, you know, helping me to do my job as a pharmacist. I think that's a massive, um, it's a massive privilege, really. Yeah. So it was certainly will have changed how I would be as a pharmacist back in Australia. I um, I struggle to imagine what sort of job I would want to to do back in Oz now. Mm. Um, yeah, it's kind of tricky for me. I, I know our future here is still years and years to come of doing the work that we're doing and hopefully it continues and carries on and we can keep doing the research that we're doing. Um, so that's sort of what I focus on. But every now and again I do think, oh, I wonder if I could go back to being a rotational ward-based pharmacist and I think, yeah, I could do it. I would have a different approach, um, a different mindset, I guess, but... Yeah, I'm not sure what exactly I would want to do. Hmm. It's funny. What advice um, do you think you have for either early career pharmacists or, or maybe pharmacy students who are listening to the podcast? Um, I would say if you're interested in volunteering, and definitely do it. You would have no regrets. Um, from my point of view now, as a, as a person responsible for recruitment and the organisational planning, um, of these sorts of volunteer-based activities, I would say don't ever be afraid to ask questions of the organisation. And your prior guest on the podcast, Chloe, was one of the first people to, um, to say to me, oh, can we talk on the phone because I've got a few questions I'd like to ask you. And kudos to Chloe because no one had ever actually done that before. And I think as a person volunteering your time and your skills, your money, 
you you should be sure that the organisation that you're working with is prioritising the needs of the beneficiaries over the needs of the volunteers. Mm. So understanding whether an organisation has a strong focus on outcomes for the people, whether they're conducting any, you know, any evaluations of their program and its success, what their plans are for the future, um, the impact of that organisation locally. I think that's really important. I would definitely say it's worth it to volunteer. It completely changes your perspective as a professional and you, like I said earlier, you can break down some of those um, walls that I think we put up for ourselves about communicating with other physicians and overall it's a positive experience absolutely worthwhile um, as a general rule I'd say if you're volunteering abroad overseas somewhere particularly in the de- in the developing world um, find an organization that has an in-country in-country partner similar to what we have here so that you know that um, although you're in, you, you're part of an invited team who's coming over to be part of something that's temporary that there's actually you know, a system set up, there's people in place to help in between times because that's something that we find as an organisation through solutions that there's so much that we do in between tours. So those volunteers coming for two weeks twice a year, it's amazing, um, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on in between and there, have, there has to be suitable people to deal with those issues, otherwise it can be a little bit dangerous. So that would be my biggest suggestion, I guess. Good advice. From a volunteering point of view. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we're probably we're closing in on the hour, so I'm um, uh, I'm conscious that I don't want to take Ooh. up too much of your time. You sound very busy. Um, if people <laughs> want to hear more about or learn more about Solutions Palmerovo, is the website the best way to go? Yeah, the Solutions website, um, it probably needs a little bit of updating, but it's still there. It has some links to the HEADS website as well. If you're in Australia and you're looking... Um, to donate or participate in something, then the the HEADS website's probably a good point of contact. It has information about our medical tours as well as um, how to donate. And both organisations have Facebook and Instagram as well, which is usually most active around the time of our medical tours. So you can find information there as well. And any pharmacists out there who want to participate can contact us directly. Um, there's email links on the website and yeah you can find all that information there perfect um i'll put the website um in the show notes as well um katie thanks so much for coming on it was absolutely fantastic to hear more about your work um it's it's absolutely brilliant thanks for having me it's been a pleasure all right i'll let you enjoy the rest of your weekend thanks so much okay bye thanks again to katie for coming on the show I'd encourage you to read more about Solutions Palmerovo, and if you're so inclined, consider donating through their website. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Look out for more to come soon.